KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Kinsey Moreland in for Annika Colbert. It is Wednesday, July 21st. California's debate over how to solve the affordable housing crisis arrives in Coronado. We will learn more about the city's fight against state housing mandates later in the show. But first, let's do the headlines. A guilty plea has been entered for murder and other charges in connection with the 2019 deadly shooting at the Chabad Synagogue in Poway. The 22-year-old gunman entered his plea yesterday in San Diego Superior Court. The plea does mean he will avoid the death penalty, but he faces a possible sentence of life in prison without parole. The victim's families were in the courtroom but did not make any statements. Sentencing is scheduled for September 30th. So for the first time in 16 months, 30,000 students in the Chula Vista Elementary School District return to the classroom today. Per state guidelines, masks will still need to be worn inside classrooms, but can be taken off while outside. There is still a virtual option where parents and kids can choose to do online classes, but school officials say the vast majority of students will be returning to schools for in-person instruction. And former San Diego mayor Kevin Faulkner's campaign to replace Governor Gavin Newsom in the upcoming recall election is in a dispute with state officials about how he is going to be listed on the ballot. Each candidate is listed with a current job title or other descriptor, but they are not allowed to use the word former. Faulkner's campaign says they want him listed as San Diego's retired mayor. Faulkner, of course, left the mayor's office in 2020, and referencing his prior role would help boost his name identification. But state officials say Faulkner has continued to work as a government advisor and college professor since leaving office, and he should use his current title instead. A campaign spokesman said they plan to sue the Secretary of State's office. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. So Coronado is a lot of things, but affordable is not one of them. With its beautiful beaches and historic hotel, Coronado is one of California's top tourist destinations. But for the many low-wage workers who keep the island running, living there is next to impossible. State officials last year ordered the city to plan for the construction of a lot more affordable housing. But as KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen explains, the city is not on board with that change. Bye. Nos vemos en la tarde. Evangelina Preciado kisses her 10-year-old son Ricardo goodbye as she leaves for work. Preciado lives with her husband and three kids in a small mobile home in Chula Vista. She works as a room attendant at the Hotel del Coronado. 
She says she'd love to live in the community where she works. That would let her ditch her commute across the bridge and bike or walk to her job. I love this place. This is beautiful, it's quiet, clean. We have the beach. So everything is awesome here. Add to those perks Coronado's low crime rate and good schools and parks. But on a hotel worker's salary, there's no way Preciado could afford to live in Coronado, where finding a two-bedroom home for less than $3,000 a month is a steal as soon as she's off work. I just feel that I have to leave and come back to my home. But this is like my second home because I pass more hours in the island than my home. But I cannot live in here. I just come and work and I have to go back. Preciado's circumstance is hardly unique. Coronado is one of many high-end tourist destinations in California where low-wage workers staff pricey hotels, shops, and restaurants, but can't afford to live where they work. State lawmakers have tried to fix this by requiring cities to zone for dramatically more housing than ever before. Last year, the state ordered Coronado to plan for 912 new homes over the next eight years. More than half those homes are meant to be affordable for low-income households. We are um, essentially trying to comply with an absurd and uh, not sensible uh, state law that's requiring us to be here. The order from Sacramento to add more housing was not well received in Coronado. Mayor Richard Bailey and the city council last month voted to draft a smaller housing plan. On Tuesday, the council unanimously approved a plan with about a third of the homes that are required. Bailey said at last month's council meeting, the number the city picked is realistic. Um, it's not based on a pie-in-the-sky number from the state, uh, which had no basis in reality whatsoever, did not take into account our existing land use, uh, size, not taking into account available space, our existing infrastructure, our sewage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This number does that. Coronado sued to get a smaller housing allocation, but lost. It's currently appealing that decision. But in the meantime, Coronado thumbing its nose at state housing law carries risks. The state can sue the city into compliance. What happens in San Diego is going to be a little bit of a foreshadowing of what happens throughout the state. John Wizard is with the San Francisco-based nonprofit Yimby Law, which sues cities to enforce state housing laws. He says small, wealthy cities across California are preparing similar fights to get out of their housing obligations. But San Diego County is the first region to go through that planning process. That means Coronado could be a test case for how aggressively the state cracks down on scofflaw cities. For Wizard, it's not just a question of following the law. It's a question of fairness and equity. And when Coronado says, we don't have to do what the state told us, we don't have to do our fair share, we don't have to pull our weight, but everybody else does, what Coronado is saying is that we're special and that we don't believe that you deserve to live here. Evangelina Preciado, the hotel worker who can't afford to live in Coronado, has a similar message for the city's leaders. I will say to them that everybody deserves a very nice home because we are working hard and um, our families deserve a very good uh, place to live too. And that story from KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. So mask wearing isn't required for vaccinated people under California's COVID-19 guidelines. But more and more counties are asking everyone to cover up when they're indoors. That's because of the spread of the Delta variant of the virus. 
UC Merced virology professor Yuri Grasses says that's a good call. The virus wasn't gone, you know, and so there are still infection uh, rates going up and we have this new variant. And so now it's a matter of how do we mitigate that, that situation. He says since children can't be immunized right now, we all have a part to play in preventing public spread. The state says it does not plan to change the current guidance. Instead, they're putting it in the county's hands to make stricter policies. CAP Radio's Sammy Kayola has more. If you aren't immunized, you should wear a mask anytime you're in public. If you are immunized, the state health department says you only need to mask up when you're in specific settings like jails, schools, or hospitals. But many counties are pushing for masks in any indoor setting where not everyone's vaccine status is known. That means grocery stores, restaurants, coffee shops. Experts say there's a reason for that. People who have had their shots are pretty well protected, but there's still a small chance that they can contract the virus and then give it to unvaccinated people. So just as predicted, California is in the midst of a destructive wildfire season. KPBS reporter Melissa May tells us about a program that's helping San Diegans protect their homes. The Defensible Space Assistance Program helps low-income seniors and physically disabled persons follow defensible space rules by getting their property cleared of brush for free. Cheryl Landrum of the Fire Safe Council of San Diego County says funding is currently provided by a grant. California is really focused on wildfire prevention, and there are a lot of funds coming down from the governor's office right now to do this type of work. A lot of these people have been in their homes for years. They have maybe lost a spouse. They need help. There is also a no-cost chipping program for any resident who clears their own defensible space. After piles are made, contractors will come out and chip the cleared vegetation for free. Critics of Governor Gavin Newsom say his COVID-19 restrictions were unfair and damaging, especially to small businesses across the state. Thousands permanently closed during the pandemic. KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati says despite that criticism, Newsom is now emphasizing his small business roots as he faces the recall election in September. In Calaveras County, tucked in the foothills of the Sierra in California's gold country, nearly one in five voters signed the petition to recall Newsom, the third highest rate of any county in the state. And small business owners like Gretel Tuscornia were at the heart of the campaign. Tuscornia owns the Pickle Patch Restaurant in San Andreas and Mingo's on Main, a store in downtown Angel's Camp. Kind of just an eclectic group of snarky items that make people laugh when they come in. When the pandemic hit, Tuscornia closed her shop but felt big business was getting a pass. Places like Walmart and Costco that are open all the time serving hundreds of people. Super contradictory. Newsom had set up a color-coded system to restrict business activities, which he credits with saving lives. But Tuscornia felt whiplash. I kind of just got to the point where I was just tired of the, oh, it's it's red, oh, it's purple, oh, it's green, oh, it's blue, oh, it's I don't know what color the rainbow we were in this time. So when the governor declared a second stay-at-home order in December, Tuscornia and other local business owners in Calaveras decided to ignore it. So I just stopped listening and I just went about business as usual. Tuscornia stayed open for outdoor dining with a new item on the menu, 
a petition to recall the governor. Sometimes they came in just to sign that. They didn't have lunch, they didn't buy anything, they just came in to sign it. Recall organizers say 900 business owners across the state offered petition signings in their shops. Others went viral with their outrage. You might remember Angela Marsden, an L.A. area restaurant owner whose business was shuttered while film production continued right next door. And Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. Thanks in part to the anger of these small business owners, Newsom is facing the most important political challenge of his career. But as the governor tells it, a quarter century ago, he was in the same shoes as these store owners. In the 90s, Newsom ran a wine shop and restaurants and felt politicians were out of touch with the needs of small business. So he complained to the mayor of San Francisco. That guy, Willie Brown, was angry with me and shut me up by making me chair of the Parking and Traffic Commission. And here I am. It's all damn connected. Being the frustrated store owner was Newsom's original political pitch two decades ago. His experiences in small business, he felt like he could help people using those experiences. Ellie Schaefer ran Newsom's very first campaign, his 1998 run for supervisor. Unlike your average shop owner, Newsom had ties to some of San Francisco's wealthiest and most well-connected families. He still ran up against roadblock after roadblock about starting his small business. And his philosophy, you know, at the time was like, if I'm running up against these roadblocks and I have the leg up that I have, what are other people who don't have these advantages running up against? Now, as business owners face months of back rent after a year of digging into personal savings and watching inventory go bad, Newsom is directing billions of dollars in grants to help those businesses get back on their feet. And he argues that he still gets it, that he uniquely understands their plight. After all, to find the last governor who went straight from running a business into politics, you'd have to go back roughly a century. At a visit to a San Francisco restaurant last month, I asked Newsom if that history made him feel a special responsibility to small business owners across the state. It's a, it's a big point of pride. It's personal for me. Uh, you know, I, I can't express to you how many extraordinary things have happened in my life because I had the privilege to be behind a counter serving other people. Back in Calaveras County, Gretel Tascornia isn't convinced. I don't know if Newsom ever can be considered one of us. And now the governor has less than a month until voting begins to convince California shop owners that he still understands what they're going through. A former San Diego Museum of Art employee, Zelina Gayton, has filed a complaint against the museum. She alleges museum officials allowed sexual harassment towards female employees and racial discrimination against employees of color. Gayton had worked as a museum attendant since mid-2017, but resigned earlier this year. She told KPPS Midday Edition about sexual harassment she experienced and witnessed at a party held by the museum where alcohol was served with no portion control. These parties, even though they fund the arts, it, it, it's done in such a unethical way because it compromises the safety and well-being of its workers. The museum would not comment on pending litigation, but they say they have hired a third-party investigator to look into these allegations. They're also conducting diversity and equity training for staff. Gayton, though, questions the museum's efforts, saying they took far too long to address her concerns. 
And coming up, you won't have to wait in any long lines for panels at Comic-Con this year. Once again, COVID-19 has prompted the pop culture convention to go online. What you can expect from Comic-Con at home. That's after a quick break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Comic-Con International, the massive summertime celebration of all things pop culture, has once again been forced to substitute an online version of the show for an in-person one. The online event begins this Friday and runs through Sunday. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando sat down with spokesperson David Glanzer and talked about what people can expect from the virtual Comic-Con. David, Comic-Con is doing their second virtual edition. So how does it feel going into it this time? Do you feel like you've learned anything or applied any new ideas to the online experience? Well, I think it's uh, a lot less stressful, which should not be confused with not stressful. But no, we have. We learned a lot, I think, in our last iteration. It's interesting because when we first started last year, I think we were probably, in terms of uh, fan-related events, were probably one of the first that really mounted something like this and uh, now that the pandemic seems to be lessening you know we may very well be one of the the last so we kind of bookend it so we're excited we think we have some uh, cool stuff coming up and um, fingers crossed that people have a good time and how are people going to be able to access it this year is it also going to be free like it was last year it'll be free one of the things that uh, we have done is a lot of the sponsorship involved so that has really defrayed the costs the hard dollar costs of what we've had to do. So it'll, it'll be free again. They can go to our website and there are portals there to take them to whichever uh, part of the uh, event they want to attend. And is it going to be like last year in the sense that panels would start at a specific time but then become available afterwards for you to like check back in with later? Yeah, that, that is the plan right now. One of the great things about being um, virtual was, uh, and we mentioned this last year, you know, during a real show, I don't mean real show, but real in-person show, uh, you have to decide sometimes, you know, what do I want to see? The great thing about being virtual is that you just have to decide what you want to see first. So the, the plan is, again, to uh, have times when the panels drop, but those panels should remain online for, you know, a period of time. For the first time in my life, I went to 70 hours of panels with the virtual Comic-Con, and it was... It was wonderful, actually, I have to say. I have to agree. We got a lot of contact from people, you know, globally who've never been able to attend Comic-Con who are very grateful to be able to see uh, what some of the excitement is about. And I, for one, was able to actually attend the Eisner Awards, which falls under my department, but I usually have to be in bed by the time the awards ceremony gets underway because I have to be up so early the next day. And it was wonderful to be able to watch the ceremony. To remind people, the Eisners are considered the Oscars of the comic industry, and they will again be online this year. And explain to people what these are. 
So this is a, uh, an acknowledgement and recognition of people who work in the comics and related comic book industry. So people who do graphic novels, I think there's uh, the web comics, things of that nature. You know, it's interesting because the in-person shows sometimes can, can run long. It's a, it's a great time for uh, people within the industry, their peers, to uh, acknowledge their contributions and their work. You know, some people have said, oh, you should really, you know, eliminate some categories or reduce the time frame so it's, 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 uh, it, it doesn't take as long. And the reality of the situation is it's, I think it's completely appropriate to acknowledge those people who oftentimes people don't know who they are. And this is their one time really in terms of, you know, uh, pure acknowledgement that they get to bask in the, in the, in the glow of, of that. And so I think it, it is as long as it needs to be. It's, it's an amazing event. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out once we get back to in-person shows, how I can maneuver actually attending the Eisner and Eisner will still be able to get up you know, the next morning at three o'clock. And one of the great things about the Eisner Awards is it really gives you a great reading list. I mean, once it's over, you can just compile a list of all the nominees and, and go out and seek these from your comic book stores. This is a great way if you're new to the, the medium, if you want some pointers, it's a great way to start. Uh, I, I hear stories of people who ended up, you know, reading a comic because it was an Eisner nominated comic or won an Eisner. And then they discovered that, you know, that artist or that writer, they liked their work. So they looked at additional stuff that, that may have been produced by those people. So it can be a really great gateway to uh, understanding and really appreciating a really, really very cool art form. Now you mentioned artists, so in this virtual edition, is there also going to be a virtual version of the dealer's room and exhibit hall like there has been? There is. So uh, one of the things that we'll have again this year is um, our exhibit hall again, which is great because you'll be able to you know, shop and, and uh, contribute to helping those people who've really been affected by COVID. I mean, we all have, uh, but this is a way to you know, help uh, support them a bit. We're using a bunch of different platforms. I think last year we used a Tumblr, YouTube, I think Discord, Scener, but it's an opportunity for people to take part in various aspects of Comic-Con and on various platforms. Now, as much fun as I had doing the virtual panels, I, of course, missed the in-person event, and Comic-Con will be doing something in-person in November. So what can people expect, or what do you know about what's going to happen in November at this point in time? Now that, again, the, the, the pandemic has seemed to you know, be slowing down a bit and, and a lot of the restrictions are lifted, we're, we're going to have an event in November. It'll be over Thanksgiving weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We like to say, you know, spend Thursday with your family and then spend uh, the rest of the weekend with, with your fan family. Uh, it'll be a much smaller event. It's more of an intimate event. I don't want people to confuse um, the special edition, we're calling it Comic-Con Special Edition, with the July show. But it'll be an opportunity for us to kind of dip our toes back into the community interaction. I, there are so many friends that I miss seeing in person. Uh, we'll have the opportunity to do that. There'll be panels and exhibit floor. Some of the things that uh, you know, our conventions are known for. Um, I expect that uh, it'll be similar to our WonderCon show that we do in Anaheim. So it'll be a smaller show, a more intimate show, but uh, it, I, I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. 
And at this point, do you know if you'll be using the whole convention center and satellite hotels as well, or is it still in We're the... We're still doing planning? a lot of planning that we will be at the convention center, I think, you know, depending upon um, any number of factors, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be determining what it is and how much space we use. You know, when we first uh, discussed this, we didn't know if there would be uh, space restrictions, if there would be social distancing, all of those things. So it's, it continues to be kind of a fluid situation, so we don't have specifics. We do know we'll be at the convention center. We do know that we'll have programming and exhibit for space. Uh, we, you know, will be utilizing some of the hotels, at least certainly uh, for room blocks and whatnot. Whether there will be outside meetings and stuff offsite, we really don't know yet. I, I anticipate that we probably won't. I think most of it we probably contained within the walls of the convention center, but it's early enough that things can change and, and it could expand. Uh, I think the, uh, what we've learned over the course of, of this whole situation is, you know, be flexible and uh, that's what we're trying to do. And that was David Glanzer talking with KPBS arts reporter and cinema junkie podcast host, Beth Accomando. Comic-Con returns this Friday through Sunday with a completely virtual show. And speaking of shows, that's it for this one. Annika is back tomorrow. Have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.